Last week, we talked about the vanity of wealth. And this week, we're turning our attention to another vain pursuit that Coelet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, sees as he looks out on the world. And that is the vanity of work. Already early in Ecclesiastes, Coelet begins to talk about work as a vain pursuit, a pursuit that yields nothing but disappointment and vanity. Look what he says in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." Reading those words from Coelet reminds me of a contemporary figure as well, um, a great comedic figure that you may know and love as I do, and that is Garfield the Cat. Garfield also hates work. Garfield loves to sit around all day eating lasagna, waiting for John to come home and to be served. I, as I was thinking about this section of Ecclesiastes. I looked up some of the comics from Garfield and what he has to say about work. Here's one that I really enjoyed. John says, you know what they say, Garfield? Hard work is its own reward. And then Garfield has his response. No wonder it's so unpopular. Uh, or take this one. John and Garfield are having a conversation. John says, talking about hard work, Hard work never hurt anyone. Garfield says, true, and then ponders it for a moment, and then says, you are talking about talking about hard work, right? Garfield hates work. He sees it as pointless. Why would anyone want to toil? And Garfield is not alone. Many of us might feel the same way about work, about the work that we do. Work is something that we have to do to survive, but we're really just trying to work so that we can free up time for leisure activities, working for the weekend. And this isn't a new perspective either. The ancient Greeks and Romans, when they thought about work and toil, they thought of it as a curse. Work was something that only certain classes of people had to do. Servants, slaves, laborers, maybe merchants. But the wealthy class, the elite, the aristocrats in the Greek and Roman world, they were able to live a life of leisure that was removed from work. That was what their life had granted them, was the ability not to work. And you might think when you start reading Ecclesiastes that, this seems to be that the same perspective that Ecclesiastes is taking. Work is just toil and striving under the sun. What good is it? But in fact, that's not actually what Ecclesiastes is trying to say. Ecclesiastes, the preacher, does not think that work is all bad, but he does think that work becomes vain when it is used as the way that we pursue meaning and happiness by itself under the sun. And he thinks that there are certain reasons for this. He gives specific reasons why he thinks that work can become a vain, empty, hollow pursuit. The question is, what are those reasons? 
what is Kohelet trying to teach us here? How does he help us live wisely in the work that we have to do in a world that is, as I've said, both created and good, but from the perspective of Ecclesiastes, also fallen and damaged? There are four problems, I think, that we find when we look at Ecclesiastes and what it has to say about work. Four distinct problems that the preacher identifies, that he sees when he looks out on the world of work. Four reasons that work becomes vain and hollow and fleeting. I'm going to talk about those today. And these four problems are the problem of death, the problem of injustice, the problem of rivalry, and the problem of isolation. Let's begin by talking about the problem of death. Why is it that death makes work vain? Look what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 2. Here's what the preacher says in verses 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Uh, the problem that Coelette is identifying here, when he looks out on the world, what he sees is that even those who strive, those who toil, those who work hard and are able to accomplish something great with their work in their life, that ultimately they must retire and ultimately they pass away, they die. And when they die, what becomes of their work? Coelette says, does it not pass on to someone else? And what if that person turns out to be a fool? What if that person ruins the work that you've done so hard, that all of your effort, this great thing that you have built up, what if it's ruined by the person who comes after you? And this is something we can come up with numerous examples of. Many times we have seen in history how great kings have built up empires and their children, their sons that they've passed on their empire to have ruined their legacy. Or to think of an example a little bit more close to home, what about Blockbuster, the company? It was started here in Dallas in 1985. The CEO, the original CEO, David Cook, he ran the company for the first 11, 12 years of its existence. And under David Cook's leadership, Blockbuster grew from a single store in Dallas to a, a corporation that had stores all around the world, all throughout the United States. All of us, I think, can remember when we had our favorite local Blockbuster that we would go to and rent movies from. But then something happened. David Cook transitioned out of leadership in 1996, and Blockbuster brought in a new CEO named John Antioco. John Antioco was CEO for about 10 years as well, but whereas David had built up this company from nothing to make it into an enormously successful corporation, John, unfortunately, did the opposite. He made a number of foolish decisions in 1997, Blockbuster, under John's leadership, rejected an offer by Warner Brothers to be an exclusive provider for their DVDs, for their movies when they would first come out. Warner Brothers offered Blockbuster exclusive rights for several months before it could come on the general market. 
but Blockbuster rejected the offer. And then in 2000, a new young company called Netflix came to Blockbuster and offered Blockbuster to buy them out for $50 million. And John Anioko laughed Netflix out of the room. Well, you all know what happened next over the next 10, 11, 12, 15 years. What happened is that Netflix grew into a company that now is worth $125 billion and Blockbuster had to declare bankruptcy. And now all those corner stores that we knew so well are gone. This is exactly what Coalette is talking about. David Cook worked and toiled and strived to build a thriving company. But he couldn't control what happened when the leadership was passed on to someone else. And this is the problem of death. The problem that no matter how hard we may work, our work ultimately will be left in the hands of another. But that's not the only problem that Coalette sees. Another problem that he sees when he looks out on the world of work is the problem of injustice. Look what he says at the beginning of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Coalette doesn't tell us exactly what these oppressions were that he's seeing and he's commenting on. Scholars who have studied Ecclesiastes, however, especially those who think that Ecclesiastes was probably written somewhere in the 3rd or 4th century BC, they suggest that what Coalette is probably talking about as he looks out on the world and sees oppression and the tears of the oppressed is a society in which the, the wealthy class are a sort of Greek elite and they have managed to gather so much wealth and power to themselves that they have been able to oppress the working class. In fact, because of debt, whole families were often sold into slavery. That was a way, a consequence of debt was to be sold into slavery. And it turned into a condition where you had many families who were experiencing generational poverty and slavery from which they could never escape. This is what Coalette sees when he looks out on the world of work. He sees some who work has benefited immensely and they are oppressing others and keeping them in slavery and keeping them in conditions where they cry out in tears. This too, Coalette says, is a vain and worthless aspect of the world of work. And then there's another problem, the problem of rivalry. Look what Coalette says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I think that a lot of us can relate to what Coalette sees here when he looks out on the world of work. He sees people who are working hard, striving, working tirelessly, but what motivates their work? Isn't it at the end of the day, Coalette says, nothing but envy of their neighbor, nothing but rivalry, nothing but greed? And will this not in the end leave them hollow, unsatisfied, and empty? This reminds me of a movie that I saw a number of years ago. 
uh, called Brad's Status. I can't remember when it came out. Uh, it's fairly recent. It's a movie that stars Ben Stiller, and he's in his late 40s, and uh, he's living in Sacramento, and he's working for a nonprofit. But Ben Stiller, his, he has a young son who is a senior in high school, and they go back northeast to look at some colleges. They go to look at a number of elite colleges where his son is interested in attending college. And this, this experience of taking his son back and visiting these colleges, it creates a bit of a crisis for Ben Stiller's character because he starts to look at his life and starts to remember what his, his, his great desires were in college, what he wanted to become. And he starts to compare himself to the friends that he had in college and how they've succeeded. He has one friend who was able to, to start a successful business and who retired young, very wealthy. He has another friend who has become really important as a political consultant who works in Washington, D.C. He has another friend who lives in Manhattan and works as a, uh, a hedge fund manager. And he thinks about these friends and he thinks that their life is so successful. And by comparison, he working for a nonprofit in Sacramento, what does he have to show for his life? One of the most poignant scenes in that movie is when Ben Stiller's character meets a girl who has befriended his son, a young student at Harvard named Ananya. And Ananya is so excited when she hears about Ben Stiller's work in a nonprofit and what he's doing. And she admires him. And so they start talking. And she tells him, she says, give me advice. If you were going to go back to my period, to where I am in life, what, what would you tell me? And at first, he seems hesitant. Do you really want to know what I have to say? But she presses him. And so he says, well, here's what I would say to, to myself, Brad. That's his character's name. I would say, forget about nonprofits, Brad. Just go and make money. And then she looks at him, surprised, and he says, no, really, you want to make a difference in the world? Just go make a lot of money. Go make a lot of money like Bill Gates, and then, and then you can go change the world. And he says, you know, I go to these parties, and people ask me what I do, and I tell them. And then for about three minutes, they sit there and listen to me and pretend like they care. And then for the rest of the night, I'm invisible, and nobody cares about me, and nobody respects me. And he could tell pretty immediately that Ananya has also lost complete respect for him when she sees how much envy and rivalry has corrupted his heart. But isn't this true for so many of us that our work is motivated by keeping up with our neighbors or our friends or by earning status, by the envy that we feel of what others own and of the success that they've achieved? Coalette says, if that is what motivates our work, then that is vanity and a striving after when. But that brings us to our fourth problem, the fourth problem that haunts the world of work in a fallen world. And that's the problem of isolation. Look what Coalette says in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. 
and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity. Kohelet looks out and he sees a person, a person who is working hard, who is striving tirelessly, who is succeeding in many ways, but is doing so in complete isolation. He's cut off from community. He's a person, Kohelet says, with no other. And he doesn't tell us why this person has found himself in this situation. Maybe it's because he's such a workaholic, or maybe it's more circumstantial. This person simply finds himself alone, and so he tries to look for meaning in work, disconnected from other people. But the lesson that Kohelet draws from this is that work, work is vain. Work is empty. Work is hollow when it is disconnected from other people, when it's disconnected from family, from neighbors, when it's done in isolation, when it's done not for a common good, but purely for ourselves. The work that we do for ourselves, by ourselves, without reference to the community around us, that, Coalette says, is vanity and a striving after wind. So Coalette, when he looks out at work and when he says it is vanity, what he means is that work has been hampered, work has been harmed, work has been corrupted by these four problems, the problem of death. We have to pass on our work. Our work is not permanent. No matter how much we succeed, ultimately we ourselves will pass on and leave it to another. That work often results in conditions of injustice with some oppressing others. That work is often motivated by envy and greed and rivalry. And finally, that work sometimes, as, as successful as it may be, and as hard as we may toil, when done in isolation, not in connection with other people, it is ultimately meaningless and hollow. And Coalette is not the first person to, or is not the only person to look out on work and to see how work is beset by these kind of conditions and problems. When I was studying back through Ecclesiastes this past week and thinking about these sections and what Coalette says, I was reminded of a document that was written in 1891, Rerum Novarum, by Pope Leo XIII. And Leo XIII, he himself was also responding to conditions of work. He was responding to the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, a century which saw so much economic progress and so much growth, but a century that also saw millions and millions of people move from their connection with local communities into cities to work in factories and long hours with low wages and cramped living conditions. A, a, a period in which you had these robber barons, as they were called in the 19th century, these wealthy magnates who made enormous fortunes for themselves, but who often did so at the cost of the condition of their labors. And as Leo looked out on this, Here's what he says in Rerum Novarum as he's reflecting on the Industrial Revolution and some of the conditions that it brought in the 19th century. He says, 
By degrees it has come to pass that working men have been surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition. The mischief has been increased by rapacious usury, which although more than once condemned by the church is nevertheless under a different guise, but with like injustice, still practiced by covetous and grasping men. To this must be added that the hiring of labor and the conduct of trade are concentrated in the hands of comparatively few, so that a small number of very rich men have been able to lay upon the teeming masses of the laboring poor a yoke little better than that of slavery itself. Now, whether or not you agree with Pope Leo about his indictment of the Industrial Revolution and the conditions that it brought, what's interesting to me is that his, his indictment, his criticism of these conditions, so closely reflects what Coelet says in Ecclesiastes. Maybe Ecclesiastes was in the mind of the, of the Pope as he wrote this document, because he also brings up the problems of injustice, problems of rivalry and greed, problems of isolation, lack of community. Leo also sees these same problems at work in his own world and the vanity that they bring to the work and to the experience of the many who are involved in work. But Leo is not the only one to complain about the conditions of work, and it's not just a problem of the Industrial Revolution. I recently read an article in the Atlantic Monthly by someone who was writing about the conditions of work today in just a year ago, an, an author who wrote an article that was entitled, The Religion of Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Uh, Derek Thompson, the author, he, he talked about workism as this condition of how Americans work longer hours and more than they almost ever have, and how so many of us are so dedicated to our work. We put in long hours and we work tirelessly to succeed. And yet, he says, because so often we look to work to provide us meaning in life to provide us happiness, to provide us a sense of self, who we are. Work becomes our source of identity and meaning. And when that takes place, it becomes something that disappoints us. It becomes something that leaves us dissatisfied. It makes us miserable, he says. 87% of people who were surveyed in a Gallup poll, he notes, were not engaged at their job and felt dissatisfied with their work. And that number is only growing. And we look out on these numbers, we look out on the fact that not only back in the days of Coalette, not only in the days of Pope Leo, but even today, so, so many of us experience work as a kind of curse, something that we strive and toil, but don't find what we're looking for. And we might be tempted to kind of conclude by adopting the perspective of Garfield. Well, why work at all? Why not just try to avoid work at all costs? Isn't work just a curse? But that's not the answer that Ecclesiastes gives. That's not how Ecclesiastes tells us to live. That's not what wisdom looks like in a fallen world, simply to reject work altogether. 
Because we have to remember that work isn't just vanity. Work is also good in and of itself. And Ecclesiastes affirms this. Look at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Here, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, seems to be adopting a different perspective. Yes, work involves toil and labor, but work in and of itself is a good. In fact, it's a gift from the hand of God, he says. And this accords well with what we read in the Bible elsewhere, because remember, work was not something imposed on Adam and Eve after the curse, after sin. Work became more difficult and involved more sweat and tears, yes, but work in and of itself was given to them in the garden. Work is a gift. Work is part of God's original good creation. What makes work good, though? Why is work a gift? How can we enjoy it well? I think that wisdom literature has something to teach us here. Ecclesiastes has pointed out that work, when done in isolation from others, is bad, is vanity, is a striving after when. But remember what we learned several weeks ago when we studied Proverbs chapter 31 and we looked at the example of the noble woman and her work. She too worked hard. She toiled. She strived. But she did it for the benefit of others. She did it in community with others. She did it to bless others. And work that is done in that way is inherently good and is a gift, not only for those who are blessed, but for the worker herself. Oliver O'Donovan, who's a philosopher, writes about work, and he actually says that this, this idea of work being done for the benefit of others and in community with others and in dependence on others, this is actually what makes work work. This is what defines work itself. Listen to what he says. Work is not distinguished from leisure in the way one type of activity is distinguished from another, swimming from walking or reading from singing. For the activity that comprises one person's work may comprise another person's leisure. What distinguishes the two is that work is the point at which our exertions are depended on by others and so determines the duties we consistently owe to others. So this is actually part of the definition of work itself. What separates work from leisure is that work is where our efforts, our toil, our exertions, as O'Donovan says, is depended on by others, where it puts us in community with others. And O'Donovan goes on to note that one of the primary ways that we live into this truth, into this reality of the goodness and the gift of work, is when we recognize that as we work, we work not only to benefit others, but we also work to give others an opportunity for them to work. Our vocations, the work that we do, is so often fulfilled when it supports others finding and being able to live into their vocations. And in order to do this well, we need to acknowledge 
and we need to be able to depend upon the work that others contribute. We need to work in a way that gives other people space to find dignity and meaning in their work. And we need to depend on how they help us. Listen to what he says here. To do this requires a clear sight of the work of other people and a lively sense of our dependence on it. Overcoming our instinctive sense that our contribution is the real heartbeat of the common enterprise. So work then is a gift. It is a good thing when it makes us dependent on others. When we acknowledge and realize the ways that we depend on other people in our work, when we honor them by working in such a way that brings dignity and gives them space to do their work, and also when we work in a way that benefits others. That's what we learn from the woman in Proverbs 31. That's part of the goodness of work. Work in isolation is bad, but work in community, that is a gift. There's another thing that we learned when we looked at the image of the woman of Proverbs 31. We noted that the work that she does is actually in many ways a reflection of God himself. She works and she takes delight in her work, precisely in the same way that in Genesis chapter 1, God works in creating the world and takes delight in the work that he has done. And of course, in Genesis, human beings are created as the image of God. They are meant to be reflections of their creator. And they are meant to reflect God precisely in the way they go about their work, in what they do. God gives the first human beings work to do, not as a curse, not as a burden, but so that they can live into the purpose for which they were created. I quoted Pope Leo XIII a moment ago, and I want to quote now another pope, John Paul II. He also wrote a document about work, and he drew attention to the goodness of work and how work helps us live into our created purpose. Here's what John Paul II says. Work is a good thing for man, a good thing for his humanity, because through work, man not only transforms nature, adapting it to his own needs, but he also achieves fulfillment as a human being, and indeed, in a sense, becomes more a human being. What John Paul II has in mind when he says these words is probably what Irenaeus, the theologian, talks about in the second century when he says that the glory of God is a human being fully alive, a human being living into the purpose for which she was created. And that when we work, this is how we do that. So yes, work in a fallen world is often marred often damaged by death, by injustice, by rivalry, by isolation. But work is also in and of itself a good. It's a gift. Work binds us to other people in community. And as we work, we image, we reflect our Creator, the God who also takes delight in His work. Living wisely in the world requires us to recognize both of these truths, both the goodness and the purpose of work and the creation and how the fall, how the devastation 
has made work difficult. Work has limitations. Work done for the purpose of giving our life meaning and happiness in isolation from others, without reference to God, that will prove vain, hollow, fleeting, meaningless. But work when done in community, work when done with others, independence on others, for the good of others, work that allows us to live into our purpose, to reflect our God, that is a blessing, that is a good, that is a gift. And as Ecclesiastes says, there are few better things than to enjoy the work and the toil that we have been given.